Today on World Footprints, we will examine some troubling realities of Western conservation efforts in Africa, connect with life in Italy, take a glimpse inside of Uganda, and we'll hear about the people of Yellowstone. Africa is often central to philanthropic and conservation efforts, but in her book, White Man's Game, author Stephanie Haynes argues that conservation is a myth. We're still facing huge environmental crises. Italy has been a source of inspiration over the centuries, and it's where author Shandy Wyant returned to her glow. I felt more me than ever before, and that feeling has never left. Uganda's tourism minister, Stephen Asimwe, shares why his country is called the Pearl of Africa. A new book, The People of Yellowstone, offers a unique opportunity to see the national park through the eyes of its guardians. A place that looks like it's someone's manicured, but it's not. Join us as we go inside conservation efforts in Africa, learn about the people of Yellowstone, explore Uganda, and hear how one author found her glow in Italy. We'll also visit Florida's Coast and the state of Maine on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, we'll travel along an ancient pilgrimage route in Italy with author Shandy Wyatt as she walks solo for 265 miles to return to glow. Then we'll hear from Uganda's tourism minister, Stephen Isimwe, about why Uganda has earned its name, the Pearl of Africa, and how Uganda of today is different from Uganda of the past. We'll learn where you can find treasure along Florida's Treasure Coast, and we'll pay a visit to the New England state of Maine. Also coming up on World Footprints, we'll explore Yellowstone National Park and learn about the people who live and work within this magnificent ecosystem. But first, in her provocative new book, White Man's Game, author Stephanie Haynes examines the larger problem that arise when Westerners try to fix complex problems in developing countries, acting with the best intentions, yet often overlooking the wishes of the local population. In White Man's Game, Stephanie finds herself tracing an unexpected storyline of the tangled history of Western missionaries explores and do-gooders in Africa. Your book, White Man's Game, is very provocative from the title to the stories. And so I wanted to start with a question that you asked yourself in your very first chapter, The Trouble with Painted Dogs. How did you come to be in Southern Africa and then find yourself entangled in this unexpected story about conservation in the country? I was working in Southern Africa, based in Johannesburg, South Africa, as a foreign correspondent. And I started writing conservation stories. Um, And when I first approached them, I, I really had a simplistic idea of the narrative. There were good guys who were trying to help save animals. There were bad guys who were trying to kill them or destroy their habitats. And as I started reporting, I realized that it was a lot more complicated. It was a lot more interesting. Uh, And I started to move away from that narrative that I think a lot of people who are in the U.S. who care about 
environment have and started trying to look under underneath and and you just realized that it was very political and, and very complex and that's how I ended up delving into the material that ended up as my book white man's game and you've actually outed um, pretty much everybody <laughs> but certainly a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the explorers that we've grown up idolizing like Stanley and Livingstone and uh, Roosevelt even and you've argued that they have had roles in threatening villages and wildlife in Africa. Why do you think we haven't heard those contradictory stories before? I think we really like a good story. And it's not just us. I think that people live in stories and live in narratives. And I think that Africa, as as the sort of a whole thing, um, has build an important role. It's a place that's different, that's a place of adventure, that has in more recent years become a place that we can help. Um, And I think that those explorers are really central to our fabric of what that place serves. I I think that they have good stories. It's, It's exciting to go into this place of the unknown that's of beauty and and foreign cultures and then come back and tell about it. And so I think the reality, as I, I write in the book, is, is a lot more complicated and sometimes a bit darker, but that isn't as fun of a story to come back to. The U.S. Parks model for conservation was first tested in Africa when the father of America's national parks, President Theodore Roosevelt, embarked on his famous safari hunt. President Roosevelt and those who followed him believe that killing and conservation went hand in hand. Speaking of narratives, I was really surprised to read uh, your narrative about live aid and that the global concert actually prolonged the civil war in Ethiopia and caused more famine in the country. Can you explain uh, this train of thought? Well, I think there are some arguments that it did. uh, And basically if you can remember back or some people can remember back to the the live aid concerts this was done to help people in primarily in Ethiopia which was experiencing a huge and devastating famine according to the organizers um and you may remember this, or some may remember this, these terrible pictures of starving children, and there were flies buzzing around, and it really formed our idea of the woe is Africa image. Um, and there were places that had severe food shortages. There was also, it was also a lot more complicated. There was a war going on, some places did have food, some places didn't uh, when we dumped a whole bunch of food aid in there and, and and money it shifted the political dynamics some people ended up moving to camps where there were was more violence where there was more hunger so some scholars who have looked at that war and that situation have said that actually this strange influx of foreign money especially when the situation on the ground wasn't particularly well understood, ended up prolonging a fight. And I think that you see that in a lot of places in both Africa and other parts of the world today, where if you end up bringing in money or resources to a complex and volatile situation that we don't particularly understand, there are risks of either hurting 
people or the environment. Mm -hmm. And you bring up uh, a point that I wanted to raise is that um, your book, White Man's Game, is not necessarily, uh, Africa is the central um, character, I suppose, and in, in your book, but you also talk about uh, the conservation efforts and um, the myths surrounding them being more of a global um, phenomenon. And, and you mentioned uh, the big green. You talk about the big green. And I want to ask you, who are they and what are they doing or not doing for conservation efforts? Big green is a term that some people will use to refer to the big conservation organizations, the World Wildlife Fund, World, uh, the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International. These are really big organizations that have huge amounts of money and huge numbers of programs all around the world. And they're certainly doing good things. And one of the points that I make in my book is that it isn't like a good guy, bad guy situation. There, there are people are well intentioned and are making really fine efforts in a lot of different places. But there has been criticism of Big Green for a few different things. One of them is a lot of times the collaboration with industries that are not particularly environmentally friendly, and you have situations where. People, the critics will call this greenwashing. You have maybe an oil company or a uh, petrochemical company connecting with one of these big green organizations, and the idea is that the conservation group will help tell the big company how to better do its job with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the environment, um, and then they get a stamp of approval. Critics say, you know, this is a way that these groups are trying to get money and, and sort of turning their back on some of their core values. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're taking a deep dive inside conservation efforts in Africa with Stephanie Haynes, author of White Man's Game. The bigger question, and, and this was one of the reasons why I wrote this book, is that you know, we're still losing huge amounts of biodiversity. We're still facing huge environmental crises. And despite these billions of dollars that have gone through these organizations, we're in an environmental crisis in a lot of ways. So, so maybe something isn't working the way that it should. Maybe we should get out of this cycle of, of sort of this constant fundraising, look, it's really, really bad, um, therefore we need more money to do what we've been doing cycle and, and, and try something else. And, and then that's what I try to get into with this with this book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right about now, many of our audience members, uh, you know, World Footprints is a socially minded uh, media company. And so our audience is very socially minded. And so I think a lot of them might be thinking, you know, gosh, in our efforts to make a difference and to support conservation projects, um, are we supporting a lie? And is there something else we could do that would make a difference? What, what advice would you 
give to uh, the, the listeners? I think there's a lot to be said for... I guess I'll have two, two answers to that. One is that I think there is a lot to be said for doing things very locally. And I'm not saying to turn the back on the global. Uh, but what I realized in writing this book is that the local history and culture and uh, belief systems of a place dramatically impact the ways that projects play out. And if you can start repairing your own backyard really well, um, maybe after you start with that, you can then collaborate with people who are next, the next town over repairing their backyard. And maybe we can start making a network of that. Um, but going into places and telling other people what to do, even if it's done in the most progressive way possible, where you're trying to explain your ideas to people and you're getting, allegedly getting local input, it's really hard to do that if we don't understand intimately what's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first thing in terms of personal action would be, be starting to do the things that you really know. But that's not enough for some people. Some people say, well, that's great, but I really do care about the world. And, and I completely sympathize with that. And I would say that what we can do as a society, as people who care about the environment, is to really start learning how to listen better and to start engaging in the sort of true community building, true dialogue exchange practices that let you understand and believe the belief systems of other people. And and from that point, start working with them to, to if you were going to go to some other place rather than coming in with your own best practices and your own ideas of what might work start talking to people and say hey what how would you live in the world mm-hmm. and go from there as opposed to how do we save this species how do we restore this ecosystem let's go back to that more humble and more fundamental question of how how do we live in this world together mm-hmm. and and i think that there's a lot of hope that can come come from that place stephanie says that we need to look at how we define and offer help as well as understanding the type of help that's needed because glossy photos don't always tell the full story i think that even though we're here to help it it's like if you were having some issues in your family and some random person came in with their ideas and said, just sit back, we're here to help, right? You know, sometimes that's great. And sometimes you're like, whoa, I've got this, right? right. Or if you really wanted to help, what you would do is you would go and you know, do whatever. Um, so the work here to help doesn't inoculate us against the need to really listen and Mm -hmm. to be incredibly respectful, including when people say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Um, And National Geographic does some amazing things, but I think it's important that we understand what they are doing and what sometimes they're not doing. So Mm -hmm. it's great that they're showing these amazing videos and amazing magazine photo essays that connect people and get people excited about the natural world. It's just very curated, and we need to know that before we go in and say, all right, you know, now I know how I'm going to save the whatever species. Everyone who visits Africa leaves a different person. How did living in uh, southern Africa, uh, particularly Joburg, change you? I think that it gave me a new appreciation for the knowledge that people have even 
when it doesn't fit our ideas of what that looks like. Um, and by that, I mean the wisdom and expertise that one can find by in communities where nobody has finished school, uh, but they have worked the land for generations is intense. Um, realizing also that my particular belief system is just as constructed as other people's um, in other parts of the world, that was also very powerful. And I think overall it just made me, I think it made me, and I think it makes everybody who's been there more humble, both humble in terms of recognizing the immense and awesome beauty that's out there and recognizing the power and the great diversity of people that we live among. To learn more about White Man's Game, Saving Animals, Rebuilding Eden, and other myths of conservation in Africa, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a link to the book. In this Destination Spotlight, we'll explore Florida's Treasure Coast. Yes, as Allison McNeil tells us, there really is treasure to be found. We are called the Treasure Coast because back in the 1800s, there was numerous Spanish shipwrecks right off of our coast. So still to this day, people are finding gold. Um, Back in July, um, off of Vero Beach, $4.5 million worth of gold was found in three feet of water. Yes. So what, what, uh, what counties or cities make up uh, Treasure Coast? Right, well we represent Indian River County, which is Vero Beach, Fellsmere, and Sebastian, St. Lucie County, which is Hutchinson Island, St. Lucie, and Fort Pierce, as well as Martin County, which is Stewart, Jensen Beach area. What side of the coast are you on? Are you on East Coast or West Coast? We are Central East Coast, so from Orlando we're about an hour and 15 minutes east. So for a first-time visitor who visits the Treasure uh, County area, where what should they see and what should they do? Well, what makes our area great is that we are not overdeveloped. You won't see t-shirt shops, you won't see neon signs or builder, uh, billboards, you won't pay for parking. So it's a great relaxing beach destination if you're looking to do something different than South Florida. We are that place. We have great locally owned um, restaurants, chef-owned restaurants. Um, Lots of things to do, 26 miles of uncrowded beaches. Um, Cultural arts are also big in our area as well. And Vero Beach is actually home to Riverside Theater, which is one of the largest professional producing theaters in the state of Florida. We also have a nationally accredited museum of art. St. Lucie County is great for fishing. They have a uh, golf as well. They have a PGA village. They also have a club med. So there's a wide range of activities. 
bit about historic sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have historic sites. Like I mentioned, why we're called the Treasure Coast. We have McClarty Treasure Museum. We're actually um, right out from that museum is where the, the fleet of 1715 actually wrecked. So they talk a lot about the treasure. We also have a Mel Fisher Museum. Um, in St. Lucie County, there is a Navy SEAL Museum, which is the only in the United States. So, so lots of museums and, and things to do. may have the universe if I may have Italy. What is it about Italy that even opera composer Giuseppe Verdi would not choose the universe? Throughout the centuries, Italy has drawn travelers to its peninsula like a magnetic force. There is something so magical and inspiring about Italy. It's a country where people go to create, reflect, and feel alive like author Shandy Wyant. For Shandy, she first found what she describes as her glow in Italy and later rediscovered it along the Via Francingia when she walked alone on a 265-mile stretch of this ancient route to Rome. Shandy joins us from Lucca, Italy to share her pilgrimage of transformation that's chronicled in her book, Return to Glow. You are currently in Lucca, Italy. Where exactly is that in the country? Lucca is in the region of Tuscany. It's a small, walled town um, about an hour west of Florence. You wrote a book called Return to Glow, A Journey of Transformation in Italy, and I'm curious about your book title. What exactly is a glow? It's when I love the world and it loves me back, and it's when my heart is leading instead of my head, and when my actions in the world are in line with the passions in my soul. You've traveled back and forth to Italy, and I understand you're living there now. Yes, I did move um, finally here after being in love with Italy for the last 30 years. I moved a couple months ago. And have you found your glow in Italy? Absolutely. I do feel it here more. I'm happier here. It's an absolute privilege to be living here. During your time in Italy, you tracked an ancient pilgrimage route. Give us an image of what that was like and what is the name of the route that you traveled? Yeah, so it's called the Via Francigena, and it's an ancient pilgrimage route from the Middle Ages that starts in Canterbury, England, and it goes to Rome, Italy, and that whole length of it takes about four months. I wanted my pilgrimage to be about 40 days, so I started in northern Italy and walked about 265 miles to Rome. American writer Mark Twain once said, the Creator made Italy from the designs by Michelangelo. Perhaps Twain's statement is reflective of the glow that Shandy has returned to, so we asked her to define it and share how and where she finds that glow. I find it because I adore Italy in this way where I just feel like my world is brighter here. 
for example, when I moved here a couple months ago, I changed planes in Zurich and I was hearing German around me. And then as I took the shuttle bus across the tarmac to the Florence bound train, I started hearing Italian around me and my ears perked up and I literally felt like my world had become brighter. To hear Shandy and others describe Italy sounds like falling in love for the first time. You know it's love because you feel it, but you can't articulate why. You just know it's love. My first time in Italy, I was 19. I was doing a budget backpacking trip in Europe, and I took a night train from Switzerland down to Florence. So my first moments in Italy were leaving the Florence train station in the morning, kind of sleepily walking towards the Arno, and then seeing that golden light on the Ponte Vecchio. And I just felt absolutely enthralled and awed, and I felt more me than ever before, and that feeling has never left. Traveling solo along a 265-mile ancient passage for 40 days wasn't without its challenges, so we asked Shandy about the obstacles that she had to overcome. It was physically really challenging for me because I was doing it after a debilitating illness and my body was still weak. And additionally, a lot of the route is on asphalt because it's following the route that an Archbishop of Canterbury took in 994 AD. And he took meticulous notes of the route and the path that he took to get to Rome. And the route now is based on his diaries, which means that a lot of it ends up being on principal roads. So the the asphalt part of it is is challenging. And what is the name of the archbishop that the uh, route follows? His name is Sidgeric the Sirius. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess that, for, that foreshadows the journey itself. It's a very serious journey. <laughs> now, now, speaking of journeys, your book chronicles um, both your inner journey and your outer journey. Um, was it difficult revisiting some of the, the painful times in your life while writing about your new beginnings? Yeah, it was. Um, on the pilgrimage, like, like you articulated um, very well there, it's the, the, my journey was both an outer journey and an inner journey, and then the book I wrote about it chronicles the outer journey and the inner journey. And um, while I was walking on the route, I wrestled with, with inner demons and then ultimately learned to step away from, from pain and loneliness. But then working on the memoir about it and, and revisiting painful memories what is, is always challenging for, for the memoirist. What did you learn about yourself uh, during this time of self-discovery? I learned a lot on this journey about my resilience, and I came away from it with this, this sort of steadiness inside me that has really served me well, even though, you know, a pilgrimage isn't a panacea to all of life's challenges. But I did focus on the route, on learning to open my heart, to kind of shed the, the naysayers in my head and learn to really listen to my heart. And I, I feel that 
you know, walking it solo really helped me to to have that solitude that I needed to receive the spiritual gifts of the journey. Mm-hmm. And what do you want readers to take away from Return to Glow? I would love that sharing my experience would help empower others who might be going through similar challenges in life. Um, I did it after a divorce and a traumatic illness that happened at the same time, and I was trying to find a positive way to heal, so I hope it would maybe give people ideas who are struggling with challenges, um, some ideas about positive ways to heal. And also for anyone wondering about solo travel that hasn't done it, I hope that it would inspire them. Mm-hmm. But most of all, for me, it's important to encourage the idea of, of in-depth travel, of reaching out across borders and getting to know people from other cultures and breaking bread with them instead of fearing them and putting up walls to keep them out. And that is the transformative power of travel. Return to Glow is a pilgrimage of transformation, a memoir of Shandy Wyant's reawakening. But it's also instructive and informative for aspiring solo travelers who want to embark on their own pilgrimage along the Via Francigena. We will have a link to Return to Glow and other resources on this show page at worldfootprints.com. listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead we will hear about Uganda, the Pearl of Africa, and the exciting offerings it holds for visitors, and we'll explore the New England state of Maine. And later we'll go inside Yellowstone National Park and view this national gem through the eyes of the people who live and work there. If you want to travel deeper and uncover more powerful stories about interesting people and places around the world, visit our website worldfootprints.com. wanted to visit Uganda and experience its ecosystem splendor, gorilla sanctuary, diversity, and coffee. Sir Winston Churchill once wrote that Uganda is a fairy tale. You climb up a railway instead of a beanstalk, and at the end there is a wonderful new world. There's a reason why Uganda is known as the Pearl of Africa. The country is beautiful and green, The scenery is breathtaking, and after years of tumult, Uganda is relatively stable despite allegations of government corruption. According to tourism minister Stephen Asimwe, Uganda is no longer marred by the legacy of Idi Amin, but today has a new narrative that is welcoming to visitors from around the world. Uganda is uh, very different from what it was many years ago. 
just to put in perspective, Uganda is a small country, about 240,000 square kilometers. Um, from an American comparison, it's about the, roughly the size of the state of Oregon. We have a population of uh, 40 million people, thereabouts, and um, we are a very uniquely geographically placed country. We are part of what is known as the Great Lakes region of Africa. There's only two Great Lakes: the one in North America, and the one in Africa. And the one in Africa has uh, Uganda is right in the middle of the Great Lakes. Uh, we have Lake Victoria. Which is the largest fresh freshwater lake in uh, on the continent, uh, second largest in the world after uh, the one in North America. I think it's Lake Superior, uh, followed by um, we we also have uh, Lake uh, Tanganyika, we have Lake George, Lake Edward, Lake Kioga, Lake Albert. Uh, we're a country that is essentially about 30 percent of the land mass of our country is covered by water. Uh, we're about 600 feet above sea level, and we are one of few countries in the world which are crisscrossed by the equator, and we have snow on top of of our mountain. So that is a very unique geographical setting. Ordinarily, snow is found in um, temperate countries, either very much north or south, but we are on the equator, and uh, we have an average. Temperature of uh, about 75 degrees Fahrenheit. It's about 28, 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, summer, summer so all year. We have summer all year round, <laughs> <laughs> and we have very, uh, from a geographical perspective, very rich soils, uh, volcanic soils, which then make our vegetation very green and lush, and lots of rainfall. Throughout the year, we're a tropical country, tropical equatorial, which essentially means that um, we have lots and lots of food. Uh, agriculture is thriving, lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, and because of that, a lot of human uh, activity is centered around the Great Lakes region. That's why we have a very high population of, of people, and. Um, Even our wildlife is attracted to Uganda because obviously there's enough to eat for everybody and every animal. One thing that people think about when they think about Uganda are your gorillas. Uganda has the world's largest concentration of primates. That's gorillas, chimpanzees, monkeys, baboons. Again, because of our flora, uh, they easily thrive. So we have 54% of the world's mountain gorillas. Over 500 of them are found in. Over four habitations uh, situated in the country, and so it's a very, very exciting uh, uh, proposition for people to visit and uh, and actually interact with the gorillas. A fully grown um, silverback grows up to 900 pounds. It's a very, very big animal, but friendly. It's a shy animal, and it's very, very friendly. You can come very close to it, about three meters. Uh, but, but you know. It's what we have as a country. You talked about the different ethnic groups, and one of the things you shared with me as well are the two lost civil civilizations um, that you you can reach, but 
uh, only after a very extensive steep hike. Well, uh, uh, again, we because of our cultural diversity, some of the, uh, the populations are very, very different. I mean, we have a tribe called the Ik. Uh, they're a very small community of people. They have a completely different uh, language, lifestyle, culture, and they live up in the mountain. Now, you also sh- shared some very interesting facts with me yesterday um, about Uganda that surprised me. Um, you mentioned that Solomon's mine yes. is, is it a speculation that the, the Solomon's mine is there? Or have you found, has someone found it? Solomon's mine has always been uh, a puzzle for many people. Uh, many people believe that this King Solomon's mines, wild guess has, has always thought it's uh, in Egypt. Others have said it's in uh, Ethiopia. But we have a very deep sense that the King Solomon's mines were actually found in Uganda because the area where they are f- s- said to be as what is known as the Renzori Mountains, uh, what was formerly referred to as the Mountains of the Moon. It's a very rich mineral area, a lot of, um, of uh, natural resources. There's diamonds, there's gold, there's oil and gas, uh, there's platinum, there's uh, cobalt, there's uh, coltan. And we believe strongly that the King Solomon's mines were actually in the Renzori's because the Renzori, the, the, the King Solomon's mines, uh, from the way they were described, uh, happens to be in a mountain with snow on it and uh, there were lots of rocks and uh, you ha- they were really kept in a very steep area. That fits in very, very well with the Renzoris. And um, given that they were actually in Africa, we have a strong sense that they are in Uganda. And that's a place, again, we are trying to create a hike and an adventure that should truly give people that experience. Well, Uganda, interestingly, is um, is uh, called the Intalacostrian region. Intalacostrian meaning that it's a place where there's lots of tribes, language groups, uh, communities, political setups. We have some of the oldest uh, kingdoms on the continent, over 700 years old. Uh, but more importantly, we are very, very welcoming and loving people. And what, what is uh, Uganda's national language? Uganda's national official language is English, but we have many dialects uh, which people can use. Uh, Swahili is widely spoken and understood. And uh, Winston Churchill actually called Uganda the Pearl of Africa. And uh, that's why everybody who comes and who leaves becomes a pearl. We will have resources on this show page at worldfootprints.com to help you learn more about or plan your visit to Uganda. Of course, as with any international travel, we always advise that you consult your country's travel advisories as well. In this Destination Spotlight, we discover the geographical diversity and natural resources in the state of Maine with Donna Moreland. Well, Maine is a huge geographic landmass and uh, larger than all of the other New England states put together. 
you can actually put them inside our borders and still have a little bit of room left over. So as a result of that, it, Maine is very diverse in terms of its landscape. We have uh, mountains along our western border with New Hampshire and Quebec. And on the east, along our coast, where uh, we border the Atlantic Ocean. So we have fabulous ocean views and uh, incredible beaches in the south. And our, our coast actually changes from beaches in the southern part to uh, kind of a rocky coast that's uh, in the middle of the, the state. But by the time you get up near the Canadian border on the New Brunswick side, you're looking at huge granite cliffs. And so uh, it's an incredibly beautiful state, and uh, it's interesting to drive and tour, but it's also fun to get out of your car and do some very active things as well. Can you talk a little bit about Maine's history or any historical sites that, you may, that, that a visitor should see? We have a lot of historical sites uh, throughout the state. Our state park system uh, is wonderful, and we have a number. They also preserve a lot of uh, the old forts uh, and the history that goes along with each one of them. And uh, the state does an excellent job at uh, preserving the history. Um, some of our historical societies are very active. Um, in Bangor, for example, they do active historic tours, uh, dress in costume, and tell you about the history of that city, which is all related to the logging industry. And uh, in southern Maine, you have the Longfellow House in Portland um, that gives tours uh, year-round and is all related to the history of uh, Longfellow and all of his poetry so that New Englanders love. As you've already heard, President Roosevelt, the godfather of America's national parks, established the world's first national park at Yellowstone. We know a lot about Roosevelt, about his early aspirations to be a naturalist, about his conservation efforts even through his infamous hunting trips. But we don't know a lot about the other conservation heroes who are at work today to preserve our natural treasures for future generations, namely the people of Yellowstone, who live and work in Yellowstone National Park. In their new book, The People of Yellowstone, photographer Steve Horan and writer Ruth Crocker share the real-life stories and portraits of 87 individuals, from volunteers to scientists and park rangers to trail guides, all who are dedicated to the preservation of wilderness and offer us a unique glimpse into Yellowstone National Park through their eyes. Indeed, for writer Ruth Crocker, who joins us from Connecticut, the People of Yellowstone Project deepened her appreciation for our national parks. Who are the people of Yellowstone, and what is the People of Yellowstone Project? Well, the people of Yellowstone in our group, who are in the book, actually, um, 
were people who Steve Horan photographed over a period of seven years. But it, they're also very interconnected They because Steve started out with, inspired by his brother who said, you know, why photograph landscapes in Yellowstone? There's some very interesting people here. So he started, I think, with um, people up in the up in the area of Livingston, that part of just north of, of Yellowstone, who are involved with Yellowstone, like Jim Halfpenny, who's um, a world-famous tracker. And Jim was really thrilled um, to be involved with the project because there has been a kind of cadre of people over the last probably 30 or 40 years who all have different really significant positions and have been around for a while. Um, and so Jim was photographed, and then he gave Steve some leads. And, and I think these people um, who form the kind of core group of the book um, really represent a group of people who've been working for the preservation and the, you know, sort of the long-term view of Yellowstone. People are very concerned about environmental issues and, and animal issues and, and things like that. And then as Steve uh, progressed in his you know, finding these people and photographing them, he met other people. So it was a, it's a very um, organic how this book <laughs> evolved. And then I, I didn't come along until actually Steve was photographing my brother, who's a ranger, and at that point he'd lost his writer. So my brother said, well, my sister's a writer. Why don't you call her? And, and um, so that happened about five years into the project. Ruth, you mentioned that you came into the project five years after Steve had been uh, taking photographs of the people in the Yellowstone. How did that process evolve for you coming into this project after Steve had taken so many photos, and how did the photos inspire what you ultimately wrote about? Steve was full of information at the point where I met him. He had been, he had he probably had 120 photographs and knew these people very well. And I knew the country, I mean, the landscape, but I didn't really know anything about people except for my brother. And so we had a kind of, the first time we met, um, we had a kind of immersion where he showed me all of these photographs and he talked about all of these people. And there was, there was a moment when I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> How am I ever going to, uh, you know, do this? And But in fact, um, you know, like anything else, it's just one bite at a time. So uh, I just started with my brother. I interviewed him first. Now, it's interesting. Uh, from what I've read about your background, you have a very strong academic background with a Ph.D., and I can imagine writing this book was certainly different than doing a doctoral dissertation, but you also had pictures to deal with, so that had to be fun and perhaps different for you in terms of writing about something. Steve is a wonderful photographer in each picture. <clears throat> he really worked hard at every time he went into a, a shoot with someone. He, he worked very hard to capture them in the best, uh, you know, in a in a way that really expressed their relationship with what they did and in the area. So that was really helpful to me in terms of informing me, you know. In a way it's a little bit it's a little bit like 
writing case studies. I was actually taken by Grant Bulltail, and I'd like to ask you about him and also ask you what were some of your favorite Yellowstone people moments? Um, yeah, he's definitely fascinating, fascinating individual. Um, but I, and I think in addition to him, well, there was one amazing coincidence. Dave Lovalvo, who is the designer and builder of uh, deep water exploration devices, and he's explored Yellowstone, the lake. Um, when I called him, I was calling a uh, uh, Montana area code, but in fact, it turns out that he has an office in the same town where I live in Mystic, Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Because he's working on a he's working on a uh, another uh, robot uh, underwater robot and uh, he has an office here at the seaport and then he's I've actually so I interviewed him right here in my town and and then I went out to uh, Quonset, Rhode Island to actually see the robot that he's building. So that was an amazing coincidence. Another incredible story was Brett Miller, who was a veteran who came back with unbelievable injuries from Iraq and managed to be rehabilitated to the point where he could, he did a cross-country bike ride. And his work with veterans in the park, where he brings a group of veterans who are also many of them handicapped uh, to a place where they can uh, work on building a corral together and have a week of storytelling and and um, connect, connection with each other. Um, it's, it was a it was an angle on you know what happens in Yellowstone that I would never have expected. The people of Yellowstone offers a unique opportunity to hear personal stories and experience the national park through the voices of the people who live and work there. We asked Ruth if this was the original intent of the book. I think Steve wanted to tell the story of. Uh, you know, the, the people behind the scenes in Yellowstone. And so he had other people, in fact, that he wanted to photograph. And these were the people, I mean, there's 87 in the book, and then he has many more photographs. But there were other people who he reached out to, but um, for one reason or another, they weren't, uh, he wasn't able to photograph them. So I think that his tenacity, you know, going out there, he would drive from Florida because that's where he lives, and he doesn't fly, and he'd live in his car and eat sardines and <laughs> and go and find people and uh, and then convince them to get in front of his camera. So it, it's kind of an amazing an amazing story. Uh, I think I I really came to know how people uh, feel very protective of Yellowstone and um, are really concerned from a lot of different angles about uh, what needs to be done to keep the park in existence. Um, and with my brother, of course, being a ranger, I mean, I had the perspective of people who were, you know, straight environmentalists, but my brother actually being a ranger, he is working for the Park Service, so I also got that angle of what it is to be a government employee <laughs> working in the park. 
um, and dealing with uh, visitors, which is uh, a big challenge because they, they really, you know, have not that many people working, considering the number of visitors, you know, it's now like four and a half million who go through there in a year. Um, in, at its, in peak season, there are 700 park employees, um, which is pretty amazing. What's the thing that's most surprising to you when you reflect about Yellowstone that stayed with you? This combination of when you're in Yellowstone, it's so, uh, I mean, it's a totally wild place. But driving through those the roads of Yellowstone, you don't always, I mean, it's, oh, you're in a beautiful landscape. And then suddenly you've got a herd of bison crossing the road and, um, it's it's this. I think it's this juxtaposition between a place that looks like it's in some ways manicured, but it's not. It's totally wild, and you're face to face with wildness in this absolutely fabulous landscape. And so, Ruth, what would you like people to appreciate and understand about the world's first national park, and maybe a lot of people don't realize that Yellowstone is actually the world's first national park. What do you hope this project, your book, yours and Steve's book, will accomplish? Well, I think, I I hope that many of the people in the book are people who actually work to keep the park um, as pristine as it is, like those people who are, you know, trying to fend off the uh, invasive species uh, by checking boats, um, and uh, and those people who are pulling up invasive weed species so that they won't take over the landscape. Um, I think people should know that there's a lot of work going on to maintain the park and. Um, we need to keep it a priority in terms of supporting it, you know, as a, um, a place for generations to enjoy, hopefully. Information about the people of Yellowstone can be found at peopleofyellowstone.com. We will also have other resources to help you plan a visit or learn more about Yellowstone National Park on the show page at worldfootprints.com. Stephanie Haynes' book, White Man's Game, received a lot of criticism, like the National Geographic film that was in Zimbabwe with her. And I understand some of the criticism. A lot of these organizations, their focus is fundraising in order to continue doing some of the conservation work that they are. But they're also, what she pointed out, is a lot of political jockeying. There's not necessarily a corruption, but collusion, perhaps between some of the larger uh, conservation organizations and the larger corporations who fund those conservation organizations for the purpose of receiving, you know, aligning themselves with, with a green brand. She made some valid points, but my concern is that in making and identifying these other truths that we never hear about, 
you know, I don't want people to feel discouraged about also contributing to and assisting in conservation efforts. What Stephanie does with her book is just help us look at uh, the environmental and conservation effort through all of the parties that are involved, whether it's uh, NGOs, uh, media organizations, corporations, just to look at it through a more realistic lens. And relationships have to be built with corporations. And in doing all of that, uh, there are going to be some unholy alliances that take place. I think the book is interesting and provocative, and you really can't uh, falter for being that. What I would like to recommend to our audience before deciding to get involved with any organization, look at charitynavigator.org for information about that respective nonprofit organization and to see where those funds are allocated. We always talk about you know the transformative power of travel and certainly um, Shandy Wyant's uh, journey, her solo journey, walking by herself 265 miles of a very long ancient pilgrimage route. That was very courageous. Number one, the fact that she did that after a debilitating illness and other life events um, was 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 very, very courageous and very transformative, I would say. I know in listening to her, it made me think about you at times when I know that you've needed those opportunities to kind of, quote, center yourself, find yourself. Did you get any inspiration from her to do that? <laughs> I don't know if I would walk by myself um, 265 miles, maybe a quarter of that, uh, but certainly... Um, I was inspired just just you know by her her dedication and her tenacity, uh, and and I'm happy you know that she found her her glow, uh, and I know you know we find our glow in different places where we go, dear. We feel m- very very much alive uh, in in the places that, uh, that we go, and one of the places I think I would certainly feel very alive because it's so different is Uganda. Today's Uganda is not the Uganda of yesteryear. I would like to go and see for myself. That's what we do here at World Footprints. We find our own truths when we take these trips. And I know you would like it simply because of the wildlife and uh, the primates. And that's your thing. And it seems like Uganda is a place that needs more consideration from a tourism standpoint. President Roosevelt, I'm so grateful to him, even though I think some of his conservation efforts and initiatives early on were misguided because he found a correlation or thought there was a correlation between hunting and conservation. Um, He has done a lot of wonderful work to preserve our uh, our lands here, you know, our, our, our national lands. And we never hear about the work of the people who have been guardians throughout the years. Um, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about the people of Yellowstone and that uh, photo profile book. Uh, there's some really wonderful characters in there. So in the um, spirit of conservation, uh, I would like to leave you with a very special uh, surprise this, this week. Two quotes from author John Muir. In every walk with nature, one receives far more than he seeks. And of all the paths you take in life, 
make sure a few of them are dirt. Thank you so much for inviting us into your homes to share the joys of our world. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.